0: Thank you Albert, for reading that passage of scripture for us this morning. Um, as we jump into this great book, the Gospel of John, um, I wanted to make sure that we read that passage. That is called the prologue. And if you know anything about music, um, you understand usually, uh, oftentimes you say there's a prologue which kind of sets the stage of everything else that's going you know, to come. And the prologue does that here in this book set the stage for the rest of the book. A lot of themes that are talked about in the first 18 verses are there and are going to be fleshed out in this book. Well, my father, who is now with the Lord, um, was a storyteller. Anyone here have a family member who loved to tell stories, was good at it? My dad um, would would love to tell stories, and he was always very meticulous in the details of telling those stories. and my, my dad, because he was uh, born in India to British parents, um, spent uh, most of his early life there in India, uh, when he told stories, they were usually about lands far off that I had ever experienced before and things that were new to me. And so it was always interesting to hear him talk about these various experiences that he went through. And of course, you know, he was one of these these British uh, people who had this, this kind of, British sophistication and formality to him. Um, for example, when he was in India, uh, he was living in the, the arena or the area of Mysore, as well as Calcutta, my dad would always be in a suit and tie. You know, in the mugginess of that country, he was always dressed like the Brits would dress, right? that formality that was there. Uh, as a young man, he started working for British Airways, which quickly moved him all over. Uh, the place. Um, He was in the Sudan for a while. Um, He was in Reykjavik for a while. If you know where that is, good for you. Um, Iceland, okay. Um, He was uh, uh, eventually in the Bahamas. But when I was born, it was in Tel Aviv. Um, When I was five, we moved to Frankfurt, Germany. And I remember one of the stories my dad told me about a very amusing Friday in Frankfurt. And the reason it was amusing to him and he would tell the story and be chuckling as he's telling the story, is that in Frankfurt and, and around Europe, there were these storms that had you know kind of blown into the area. And so a lot of the air traffic was struggling and was coming in and delayed and late, and, and flights weren't getting off, and it was really just kind of chaotic. And there was one British Airways flight coming into Frankfurt that was very, very late. And on it were 30... Jewish rabbis who were on their way to Israel. Okay, now get this, it was a Friday. They were late coming in. They were supposed to get a connecting flight that would take them into Tel Aviv with plenty of time for them to get out of the uh, airport and to their final destination before what? Before the Sabbath started. But their flight is delayed, and so now the next flight that they can get on is Saturday morning. And my dad is telling them, listen, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do, but we would be more than happy to pay for all of you to spend a room in a hotel tonight, and we'll get you out on Saturday. And they're like, well, we can't do that. We can't travel that far on the Sabbath. That was, that was the narrowness of their particular um, understanding of their Sabbath you know, regulations. And, um, and, you know, they started to argue and say, isn't there anything else we can do? You know, we can't do this, and we can't even travel on the Sabbath from the hotel to the airport because it's beyond the mileage that might be there. And so my dad's telling this story, and he saw the, the, these rabbis all getting together in the airport and just kind of talking and, and getting angry as they're talking about this whole thing. And finally, what he understood was that the head rabbi was asked by the rest of the rabbis to go and to pray and to discern the will of God. And so this head rabbi finally came up to my father and says, you know, I have prayed and and God is going to allow us this time to to get on the plane tomorrow morning and to go to the hotel tonight, you know, and it was humorous to my dad that because of their circumstance, boom, it all just turned upside down and they were able to, you know, somehow get the special message from God so that they could go on and do what they needed to do at that point in time. My dad would just tell these stories about his life and his experience working for British Airways in different places. And they were typically full of, of, of life and full of, of great examples and um, just really enjoyable to listen to. Sometimes he would tell the same story over and over and over and over again. One of my regrets, um, although we attempted to correct this, was we wanted my dad to write down these stories, to, to put actually a record of these stories so that we could actually have them and know, hey, this is how this story went. And sadly, that did not happen. And so now I just have the, the, the memory of hearing the story. Some stories I know better than others. But there are some stories that I, I vaguely remember that really were, were exciting, I think are important as far as a family is concerned, right? As we come to this particular gospel, Understand, a gospel is a record of what? Stories. But they're not just stories that are made up. They're stories, ultimately, that are eyewitness accounts. They're stories that John, in particular, the Apostle John, uh, John, the the son of Zebedee, who has a brother by the name of James, he is is gathering this information, and for the most part, the, the account that he gives here are his own eyewitness accounts. They're certainly the apostles' accounts of what took place um, during the life of Jesus. So as we come to this gospel, we must understand, we must begin by recognizing here that these are eyewitness accounts of John's experience. And they're full of life, they're full of instruction, and they're full of revelation for us. So uh, as we begin here, I want to talk a little bit about the author of John's gospel. And I mentioned to you that it's John, considered the apostle, um, considered the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, but one of the unique things about uh, about about John. But just you know, just imagine here's this disciple, and imagine all the things that he went through as this um, as this disciple. Imagine what it would be like to meet Jesus face to face, to be taught by him, to be chosen uh, to be one of his personal disciples. Now you know we kind of think of it as you know it's kind of like a a sports game, you know. And Jesus came along, and said, oh, "I'll take you. I'll take you." And no, 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 no. There were lots of people that desiring to be Jesus' disciples. But remember the passage uh, where he, you know, he says, "If you, if you're not willing to deny yourself and take up the cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciples." All these people that came ended up leaving. And although Jesus did handpick some of these disciples, it was truly an honor to follow a rabbi, and he was asked to be a part of that group of men called the disciples. Can you imagine what it would be like to join Jesus as he is ministering, as he's performing miracles, as he's speaking life-changing words of wisdom and preaching to the multitudes that he, in fact, is the Christ, is the Messiah, the Son of God. Can you imagine what it would be like to watch firsthand as he turns water into wine or to see him multiply five loaves and two fishes and feed a multitude of people, to observe a lame man get up and walk and take his bed with him, to, uh, to be present as Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. These are all incredible realities that John is going to be recording for us in this great gospel. Can you imagine what it would be like to, to know that this man whom you have humbled yourself before and that you are following, loves you. One of the interesting distinctions of John's Gospel, unlike the other Gospels, is that John is never named in his Gospel. In fact, when he comes to a passage that's talking about himself, he usually doesn't talk about himself, or he refers to himself as what? Anyone know? The disciple whom Jesus loved. In fact, we find that, first of all, when they're in the upper room and Jesus is communicating to the disciples that he is going to be betrayed. And it says there that, that uh, here, you know, here's, here's the disciple whom Jesus loved leaning on the breast of Jesus, leaning on him as he is intimate in his relationship with him. This is also identified um, at the cross. He is referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved as well as the disciple. It goes on in that passage, identifying the disciple whom Jesus loved, but as well as this disciple. At the empty tomb, he is the one who comes running because fat Peter couldn't get there quite as fast, and young, spry John got there really, really fast He just identified him as the disciple, and ultimately in that passage, the disciple whom Jesus loved. All right? We're also told... Um, Oh, that expression is also used by John at the Sea of Tiberias. This is now after Jesus has been crucified. So we find this, this this expression: "the disciple whom Jesus loved." Now you might you might initially think of that expression as somewhat arrogant. You know, I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know, and the idea isn't to say that he is loved by Jesus any more than anyone else. The point here is. I am a person, I am a disciple whom Jesus loved. Just the fact that he was loved by Jesus was a significant thing. It was really a statement of humility. It was a statement of, you know, I I have to put myself in the context of the story because I was there, but I really don't want to draw attention to myself necessarily. I want to be humble and just recognize that Jesus loves me. So don't think that, that he's being arrogant at all. In fact, the Apostle Paul, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter two and verse 20. Galatians 2 and verse 20. And I want you to notice there, the Apostle Paul even uses similar language to talk about himself. It says, Paul says this, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, get this, who loved me and gave himself for me. So as Paul saying, well, I am the only exclusive person here that God loves. Absolutely not. He's saying, though, that God... Loves him, and then he later in, in Ephesians chapter three, you may, we may want to look there, beginning at verse fourteen. He says this: For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant to you to or grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So this, this love that's being talked about here that, that John is saying that he is the recipient of is the same love that if we are God's children, we are the recipients of. So we find ourselves identifying with John because we are the objects of God's love, right? We are the disciples whom he loved. And specifically in that, in those passages, though, he's identifying himself in this way. Now listen, it's, it's, this, is, this is why as children we grew up singing, if you grew up in the church, Jesus loves me, this I know. It's not a foreign concept, right? I mean, it's not something you wait until you're an adult to figure out. This is a basic tenet of what it means to know Christ and to know God and then maybe as you become an adult there's some more formal songs some hymns like you know love with everlasting love led by grace that love to know spirit breathing from above thou hast taught me it is so this full and perfect peace this transport all divine in a love which cannot cease I am his and he is mine Maybe more recently, a popular song that we're going to sing in a little bit, Oh, How He Loves Us. Oh, How He Loves Us. Because He does. It's part of who He is. It's part of what He does. He loves His children. He loves His disciples. And get this, if you have embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have been the object of His grace and He's drawn you to Himself and you've been radically changed through regeneration and you've responded faith and repentance to his gospel call, you are a disciple of Christ. He loves you. You fall right into place here with where John is as a disciple. Now, there is some external evidence as to the fact that John is the author of this book. I don't want to go into great detail, but Irenaeus, one of the church fathers, um, around 200 or so refers to John's Gospel as being authored by John the Apostle. And he states in his, in his documentation that he, he got that information from Polycarp, and Polycarp was one of John's, might want to say, disciples. He sat under John. So there's this direct historical line and link that says, you know what, John is truly the author of this Gospel. Now, not that it's huge for us to argue and to understand that. It seems pretty clear that he's the author of this gospel. But you know what? There is something about God working through personality. There's something about God working through one of his disciples that ultimately would be humble and would be careful about not bringing glory to himself. That says a lot about John. He really wants God to be glorified in here. He really wants uh, Christ to be exalted. Now, there's some other things that we need to think about as we prepare ourselves for this gospel. So I'm calling this the uniqueness of John's gospel. How is John's gospel unique from Matthew, Mark, and Luke? I mean, you might be saying to yourself, "No, why write about all these experiences? Haven't Matthew, Mark, and Luke already done that? What's the point? I mean, why a fourth gospel? Um, Is there really need for another gospel, another account of Jesus and his ministry? Well, honestly, it's not for us to decide that, is it? When it comes down to it, not, it's not an issue of, well, we think three is enough. Um, God, in his wisdom, chose to speak through the account that John recorded for us. God, in his wisdom, now breathed out through John and his personality this other account of the life and the works of Jesus. And, and guys, this account is pretty unique compared to the other three Gospels—they're called the synoptics. Matthew's gospel was written to the Jews, and emphasizes Jesus as the Messiah. So it's written to the Jews, emphasizing Jesus as the Messiah. Mark's gospel was written to the Roman Gentiles, emphasizing Jesus as the suffering servant. I remember preaching through through Mark, and I remember just being being really. Struck by the statements that Jesus makes to his disciples about, you know, I, I have to go here. This is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be um, uh, I'm going to be hung on a cross. I'm going to be I'm going to be buried. I'm going to rise again. He he lays all that out in this in that Gospel of Mark, and he's presenting Jesus in particular there as the suffering servant. In Luke's Gospel, we find that he's Luke is writing to the Gentiles. In particular, he identifies Theophilus. And as he presents Jesus, he emphasizes him as the Son of Man. So when we get to John's Gospel, it's considerably different, but somewhat simpler. Uh, sorry, similar. John was writing to both Jews and Gentiles and emphasizes Jesus as the Son of God. So that's, that's the audience, the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, Let's think about the scope of his gospel. What does Matthew's gospel begin with? Huh? Genealogy. What does Luke's gospel begin with? Does it have the genealogy? Yes. Both Matthew and Luke have a genealogy, right? Mark doesn't have a genealogy. He just kind of jumps right in. Boom, here we are, all right? When we get to John's gospel, does he go as far back as the genealogy? He goes way far back, right? In the beginning was the Word. So his scope is far broader than the other Gospels. It is John who brings this this Word understanding to who Jesus is and fleshes it out for us in this great book. In particular, in chapter 1, verses 1-18, through we find this great exhortation and instruction and identification of Jesus um, as the Word. And so the scope is certainly um, broader and greater. Um, John's Gospel really only covers 21 days. Well, obviously, if you talk about eternity, it covers more than that, right? But when you get to the actual life and ministry of Jesus, when we land on that, it really covers 21 days. Now, the the great thing, guys, is this. It's going to take us about nine months to travel 21 days, okay? Or maybe even longer. But that's just the reality of, of what it is. 21 days is not a long time, but it is, it is the time primarily when Jesus heads into Jerusalem and it's all the Passion Week just laid out for us. And then, of course, it ends up with, um, with him uh, rising again. Um, what does John leave out? This may come as a surprise to you if you just haven't connected the dots here. Um, he leaves out the parables. He has a gospel doesn't have any parable that seems kind of strange right you usually think of the parables being there the account of the transfiguration the institution of the lord's supper casting out of demons i remember preaching through mark's gospel and it's just like jesus is casting out demons all over the place all around galilee he's doing that john's gospel mm-mm, silence on that Jesus' temptation his baptism calling of the 12. There's a number of those things that are just assumed in the context of what John is trying to accomplish here. He doesn't mention the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which are so much a part of the other gospels. So there's a lot of things that are not in John's gospel. All right? What about some things that he does include? Well, about 90% of John's gospel is unique material to John. Now, not only is it unique, but it tends to be longer as far as the narratives are concerned, and they tend to be more detailed. Not all of them, but they do tend to be more detailed. Here are some some accounts that you are very familiar with that are not in the other Gospels. The, The whole story about Jesus turning the water into wine, his encounter with Nicodemus, his encounter with the woman of Samaria, the raising of Lazarus, the discourse in the temple, a number of those discourses some private instructions between Jesus and his disciples. So this is, just, this, this is far more than that. I'm just giving you a highlight of things that John is really unique. And John brings to the gospel story, the gospel picture, a, a, a fuller understanding and a fuller awareness, in particular, of that Passion Week and, and some of the details and some of the attitudes some of the things that took place uh, along the way. I'd like to read... Um, just a quote by John MacArthur I think is really helpful here. Two things must be borne in mind concerning the differences between John and the synoptics. First, those differences are not contradictions. Nothing in John contradicts the synoptics and vice versa. It's really important to understand that even when it seems like there's a contradiction, there isn't. Sometimes it's, it's, it's the angle in which you're looking at certain things. It's your perspective. It's the place where you are. Uh, there is nothing there that contradicts. Secondly. The differences between John and the Synoptics must not be exaggerated. Both John and the Synoptics present Jesus Christ as the Son of Man, Israel's Messiah, and the Son of God, God in human flesh. All four Gospels picture him as the Savior who came to save his people from their sins. John uh, uh, died a sacrificial death on the cross and rose from the dead. So there's, there's certainly a lot of similarities in some of the key areas. But there is a uniqueness to John's Gospel. and it, To me, it's, it's very compelling and it's very exciting to see that um, as we jump in. And I hope that will kind of get your spiritual juices flowing to think, you know what, I, I want to get in here and I want to kind of begin to, to study this and, and to, to read it and to, to grab a hold of it. Well, to help you do that, uh, I want to just present to you a basic structure of John that may be helpful to you. Because I find that sometimes just wrapping your hand around what's going in the book is helpful as you read it, so you can kind of see where things fit. This is very, very simple, um, but uh, I, I want to at least kind of give you this perspective. First of all, there's the, this, this first section, the pre-incarnate king. This would be the, the prologue. This is what we know of Jesus before he is incarnated, before he becomes uh, man in the flesh, or God in the flesh, I should say, right? Then there's the second section, which would be the incarnate king. This is the bulk of John's Gospel. This is his life uh, as this incarnate king on this earth and ultimately uh, begins with his inauguration, his procession, and ultimately his coronation. And then there's the third, which would be the ministry of the risen king. Okay? So although these are somewhat bookends, the first part and the last part, it gives you some perspective that John is, is kind of full in his scope. And he's presenting... He's presenting Jesus a little differently than the others. Not that, not that his, his Jesus is different. It's just that the presentation of Jesus is different. What he's trying to emphasize is a little different, but consistent with uh, what the other Gospels are saying too. Now here's my challenge to you. Because I think it's important um, for all of us as we go through the Gospel of John, not just to simply wait from Sunday to Sunday and to read the passage on that Sunday morning, but I would just encourage you on a number of fronts. Just imagine if you were gonna go to, um, to Yosemite and you wanted to see Yosemite and so you, you rented a helicopter and someone flew you all around Yosemite. It would be really, really enjoyable to go and to fly and just get a grand scope of, of what Yosemite all looks like. And there's different parts to Yosemite, right? There's a real mountainous area, there's the valleys, there's the moors, different sides of it, and you kind of get a picture of what's going on there. But you wouldn't get that if you just kind of took, you know, one day at a time and stepped here and stepped there. You, you'd eventually get there. One of, the, one of the joys we can have, and I want to encourage you to do this, is to read John's Gospel in one sitting. Say, like, Oh, man, that's a lot of chapters. I, I know. Um, this is God's Word, and you want to grow with God's Word. I just want to encourage you, challenge yourself, take a couple of hours, sit down, don't have a pen with you. Just sit down and read. Just sit down and read. And then over the course of our time together, read it again. But maybe this time you can have a pen with you. I just want to encourage you to get the grand scope of what's going on and not just see the tree without the forest. You need to be able to see the big picture of what is going on there. And then secondly, as we move, maybe emphasize certain sections. And I'll help you maybe as we as we move through to say, you know what? I really encourage you to read this section as we're dealing with certain maybe themes within the structure of what's going on with John's gospel but read and reread and reread and reread and I remember um, a number of years ago going to Shepherd's Conference with John MacArthur and one of the things that he said that he does when he's preaching through a book like this is that he'll kind of divide it and he may have like eight chapters that that he'll say okay I'm just going to read these eight chapters you know for the next three months every day and you imagine if you did that every day You get to know that passage and and those stories really, really well. Now, if you try and read the whole book every day, that might be a little bit too much. But you can at least chop it into smaller sections, all right? So here here ultimately is the goal, all right? If if someone has never been to California before and they land here um, in San Francisco and they come to your home and they want to see the sights, you're going to take them to a number of different places. And they're going to come up to you and say, hey, can we go to Yosemite?" Right? And you're going to say, ah, um, it's not Yosemite, it's Yosemite. And you're not, they're not going to know that it's Yosemite unless someone teaches them that it's not Yosemite. You with me? And so that's part of the reason why it's important for us to actually go and let's go to Yosemite and find out it's not Yosemite because everyone's calling it Yosemite. When I first came to California, I was standing up giving announcements in church and I was talking about the Rowell Ranch Rodeo. Is that how you pronounce it? No, I was saying the opposite. I was saying the Roll Ranch Rodeo. I got it completely wrong. I distorted it and everyone laughed because I didn't know the proper way to pronounce something that could be pronounced a number of different ways. There is something valuable of, of recognizing, you know what, a preconceived idea, a notion you may have, what you think may be true, may actually not be true, and your assumptions may be off. So even though you may have been through the Gospel of John before, you've read it before. I want to encourage you: read it again, and reread it, and reread it, so that it can be fresh with you, and you won't get your Yosemites and Yosemites mixed up. Okay? Because you know we want to make sure that we're we're seeing God's word as it really is unfolded for us, right? Let me challenge you with that. And that's just a little structure to help you along the way. And uh, and as we go along, I'll try and give you some directions for some other things too, okay? But let's get into the bulk of our of our time here, because we want to get into the actual Word. Here is the passage that we're going to be studying right now. I, I did want Albert to read the prologue, because I think it's important for us to read it, and to read it, and to read it, and we're going to spend a few weeks in there, um, so I want to make sure that we're just kind of getting ready with it. It's It's not an easy section of Scripture, and uh, it was helpful for us to begin with that, but John is one of those unique books that actually gives us the reason why he wrote it. Isn't that handy? Luke is another one, right? At the beginning of Luke, he says, hey, listen, Theophilus, I've gathered all this information from all these people so I can give you an orderly account of what Jesus did, right? Great, thanks, Luke, for telling me what this is about. John tells us also, but he tells us at the, at the end part of his gospel, and here we have it on the screen, It says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now, when I read the passage of Scripture, in particular verse 30, there's a part of me that gets a little frustrated. And there's a part of me that kind of shivers with that frustration, because it's a section of Scripture that some people will throw out to justify and to give credence to their completely distorted view of who God is and what He's called us to. And here's typically how it would go. Um, When they're confronted with the truth of what the Word of God says... These self-deceived people will will quote, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So, that being true, who are you to say that what I believe isn't so? Jesus may have taught that. You get the problem there? Or they say, how do you know all of what Jesus taught? I mean, who do you think you are to think that you know everything that Jesus taught? Why are you so close-minded? Why are you so narrow to think that only what is actually recorded in the Gospels is all that God wants us to know? Ah, that's a very, very carefully worded statement there. Jesus did teach more than what we have recorded in the Gospels. Is that true? Yes. But God did not inspire for us through the writing of the gospel writers and and as we look at John, John's account, God did not choose to include all of those other things that Jesus said or even did in this gospel. That doesn't mean then that we have an incomplete gospel. What it means is that John, under the care and the providence of God, was recording specific Examples and illustrations and accounts of the life of Jesus and the words of Jesus and the events that took place in Jesus' life, so that we could have the data necessary to prove that Jesus is Christ, Son of God, our Savior, our Lord. So let's read this passage one more time. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but These, what I have recorded in here, what I've just laid out in this gospel, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You understand that? So he chose personal eyewitness accounts that either he had, notice it says here, signs in the presence of the disciples or other disciples, other apostles had, and he gathers it together to prove a point that Jesus Christ is, in fact, that Messiah. See, otherwise, if you come to this passage like I was telling you earlier, this is Pandora's box for whatever you want, right? God, in his wisdom, worked through the pen and the heart of John as he wrote out his gospel. And we have in this gospel everything that God wants us to have So that we can understand and see that Jesus is in fact the Christ. So God has carefully chosen to give us what he wants us to know. So what we come to now is really a window or a key in understanding this whole gospel. And here's how it goes. Look at verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It's it's just directly there. Here's how it goes. Three words. Evidence, belief, and life. Evidence. These things have been written. These things. These accounts. These examples. These times when Jesus spoke to us. When he spoke with the religious leaders. These are all the data. This is all the facts. I remember going to Winshuler's in... Michigan. It's a restaurant in Michigan, and on the walls, one of the things that was written there is this. Facts are stubborn things. Fact is a fact. You can prove it to be a fact. It is a fact. You can't get away from the fact that it's a fact, right? It's stubborn. And what we have here then is evidence, proof, facts. And by virtue of those facts, we can, based on those facts, believe. And what is it that we can believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, um, sorry, He is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. So get this, the ultimate goal that John has for us is not belief. It's what? Life, right? God so loved the world, that gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have what? Everlasting life. Tells us that um, I have come to not just give you life, but give you what abundant life. So, so life, and this, this, these are themes through the whole of this gospel. That He is, He is, He is the God who, when we believe in Him, and we ultimately receive from Him this eternal life, we have this this life. We have this sustenance. We have this new life. This abundant life. This eternal life that's the goal so let's look at each of these three just a little bit more specifically okay so in order to reach that goal um, of life we have to believe certain things about who Jesus is right and in order to believe those things about who Jesus is we have to have firsthand testimony that those things are true so we have the evidence helps us believe that leads to life. That's the picture, that's the key, that's the window. And we're going to see that throughout this gospel as we go through. Okay. First of all, let's think about the evidence. And I want you to turn now to 1 John, 1 John chapter 1, again written by the Apostle John, because I think what he says here gives us further evidence in the ways in which um, things were carried out in his... Uh, ascertaining the truth of what took place. Notice what it says, 1 John chapter 1, and verse 1. That which was from, from the beginning, which we have heard, and he's speaking here about Christ, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest or made known, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Now, I'm reading that because I want you to see the specific things that are mentioned there. All right, the things that we've heard, things that we've seen, we've looked upon, touched. There's all the senses here being used to describe this data gathering, right? All this is there, and it's the same criteria that he used to compile the, the data for his gospel. So what John has to say is the result of the witnesses of the disciples or his own personal eyewitness account go back to verse 30 of what we looked at here it says now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book so uh, the disciples certainly were eyewitnesses they had a lot to say John in particular himself was an eyewitness and we see him in these accounts talking about the stuff that's going around them. this past week I came across this article that basically sums up the world's attitude toward the scriptures it's written by Brian Alger and here's what he says In the realm of religion, a primary requirement is that belief must integrate a leap of faith. In other words, religion asks us to have faith in and live by certain kinds of predetermined and imposed beliefs that require a leap of faith. This leap of faith refers to a lack of clear what? Evidence to support the belief system being promoted. And thus, assumptions must be adopted on the basis of the presence of a sacred text. Did you catch what he's saying there? He's saying basically this. And I know it's a broad stroke for all sorts of different religions, but let's apply it to Christianity. He's ultimately saying that even in Christianity, in order for you to believe what you believe, you have to do what? You have to make predetermined assumptions, and you have to take a leap of faith because you don't have clear evidence to support the belief system that you're promoting. What does John say here? What would John say about what Brian Alger is talking about? John is saying to us, listen, I am giving you eyewitness account. I'm giving you evidence. You know, talk to my other apostles if you want. and That's what I've done. We've gathered this data, and I'm presenting to you the truth of what is going on here, John is saying, listen, there's no leap of faith. It is faith that is founded on fact. Okay. Maybe this is what he would say. Not only did I witness most of these accounts, but they were witnessed by many other apostles as well. We are men and women of integrity, speaking the truth of what we saw, heard, and touched. I think it's important for us to recognize here that these are honest men, honest women, giving account of their honest experiences, and they've they've been verified. And, And in fact, any any crossover between the gospels is demonstration that that's a reality, because we got consistency going on: same story, same facts, same information, same focus all going on there so john's evidence or proof comes in the form of eyewitness accounts and uh, as well as uh, statements and activities of jesus now in particular in john's gospel we have eight miracles and it's kind of like these miracles are kind of like the the hooks that kind of take you through proving who jesus is all right turning the water into wine healing the royal official son the healing of the lame man feeding of the multitudes, the walking on water, the healing of the blind man, raising Lazarus, and then after Jesus has risen, the the catching of fish miraculously. You don't have to get all that. Don't worry about it. You'll eventually get there. Um, But not only are there these eight miracles. There are these seven self-statements that Jesus makes. They're called the I Ams. Jesus himself is claiming to be something with the expression, I am, which has Old Testament implications, right? Saying I am is really identifying himself as God, as Yahweh. But he talks about, he says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. So it's just proof after proof after proof after proof, not only by virtue of his miracles, but by virtue of who he says that he is and identifying himself with Yahweh. So, evidence then is the basis. Evidence then leads to belief. Now, let me just pause here. Two kinds of belief. Say okay, you know, First of all, I say, okay, evidence leads to belief. That means this gospel is really evangelistic. In other words, it's an apologetic... And the goal of it is to show who Jesus is so that people can be converted. Would you agree that that's that's a big purpose of what's going on here? Absolutely. The Gospel of John has been probably the key gospel to to be used to minister to people and say, listen, just read this gospel and you will see Jesus on display here. It is an evangelistic book. But I want to caution you. Don't just think, well, then it's just evangelistic. If I'm a believer, how is it going to benefit me? it's going to benefit you because the more you see Christ on display, the more you want to trust Him now and what He says with your life. You're going to be growing in that. Just like the gospel is what ultimately brings you into the fold, but it's the gospel that you have to preach to yourself every day to continue to believe what God says is true actually is true. So, evidence leads to belief. and Here's what it says in verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So, true faith involves believing certain things about Jesus, namely, that he is none other than the promised Messiah, God's only Son, our Lord. D.A. Carson stresses this fact. I think this is very helpful, just as a nuance, but it's helpful. John is not seeing or seeking to answer the question, who is Jesus? Jesus. He's seeking to answer the question, who is the Messiah, the Son of God? And the answer to that question is Jesus. Okay? So I think sometimes we, go, we may go at it backwards. Say, All right, who is this Jesus? He's the Messiah. No, he's saying, who is the Messiah? Who fits into this category? Who fits this mold? Who rises to the level of, of criteria that he can be called the Messiah? Well, certainly... It is Jesus. That's the answer throughout this book. So John is writing this account to give evidence of proof for two groups. For the Jews, first of all, or might want to say God-fearing Gentiles who also attended the synagogue, but to them, he presents Jesus um, as this Christ. He's saying that Christ is this Jesus. Secondly, to the, the, the Gentiles, he's saying that Jesus is the Son of God. So these two statements go hand in hand and put together here as part of the purpose of, of revealing who Jesus Christ is. Now, open your Bibles to chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. Let's just start there. This gospel begins with, I've got to get my clicker going here. The gospel begins with, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Of course, the word there is focusing and presenting Jesus Christ. That word is Christ himself. Then go to chapter 1 and verse 29. John the Baptist now, preparing the way, declares this. Behold the Lamb of God, pointing to Jesus, who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus is identified as the word. He's identified here as the Lamb of God. Now go to the end of the gospel to John chapter 20 and verse 28. And here's, here's the uh, disciple Thomas, who we know as doubting Thomas because he wouldn't believe that Jesus actually rose. And he just thought his, his other disciple friends were, were, you know, just, they were crazy and they were just playing with him until he actually touched him. And he appeals to, to Jesus by saying, or he answers him and says, my Lord and my God, after he realizes that Jesus has risen, um, from the dead, and that's not an expression that the Jehovah's Witnesses say, well, you know, he touched and said, oh, my Lord, or my God, as if this is some explanation, you know, uh, just kind of expression by saying, oh, wow, which is how they argue it. He's identifying that Jesus is God. See, this this argument is through this book, and it's driving to ultimately point to that particular statement. So from the beginning of this gospel, John is building a case Prove that his readers uh, for sorry prove to his readers that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Now what's interesting is that John chooses to use a number of examples that really focus on Jesus' creative power. Remember in, in the prologue it talks about, in fact just turn there for a minute just so you can see it. You were probably there just a minute ago, but chapter one, Verse 3, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, this Jesus, this word is ascribed to be one who creates, right? And who is the Lord of those creations uh, that he makes. And it's interesting that as we go through John's gospel, we will see Jesus' creation power and his ability to, to overrule the creation that he has created. Um, he raised Lazarus from the dead. Isn't it significant that Jesus comes light, right? And the women are crying, and they're boohooing, saying, if only you were here earlier, then you would have been able to save him, which only makes the miracle what? That's far greater, right? Um, he heals the man born blind. Emphasis here, the man born blind. He is never, ever seen in his life. It's not that he got blind. He was born blind from birth, and yet he heals him. His creative powers jump in and heals this man born blind. Again, demonstration not only of his miraculous powers, but his creative powers. Um, The creating of the food for the multitude. Five loaves fish. I don't think it's going to feed five thousand, right? Well, with with the creative power that Jesus has, it does. Another one would be just Jesus walking on water, an example of Him overruling the powers of the creation that He has created. All right, He is not bound to them. At times, in His wisdom, He usurps that power that He is, or that that those parameters, because He is God. He created. He can overstep that creation and do whatever He wants with it. And it's just one more evidence that Jesus Christ is acting in a way that is certainly outside the norm that reinforces the fact that He is someone other than simply natural man. He is, in fact, the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. We also have a number of examples of people coming face-to-face with Jesus. And face-to-face with the evidence of who he is and responding either in faith or refusing to believe. Dick Lucas puts it this way, John's great focus throughout the gospel is on faith and unbelief as provoked by encounters with the person of Jesus himself. So here's the evidence. Lay it out for you. How are you going to respond? Some believe... Some reject and walk away. It's on display for us to see. So there's evidence that leads to belief. And then finally, there's evidence at leads to belief and then leads to life. And I, you know, I mentioned a little bit earlier, in this book we, we have life mentioned a number of times throughout this. I think it was probably about 20, 20 passages that, that uh, use this word life, talking about what, what Jesus gives us. Or Most of them are eternal life talks about new life he talks about abundant life he talks about life in his name Um, he identifies himself as the light of life and the bread of life the water of life and I think even the word of life so uh, you know he is the one who is the one who is producing and providing this life now all these things being true I'd like for us to go to chapter 3 and verse 36. Chapter 3 and verse 36. I want you to notice again what Jesus says. Whoever believes in the Son has what? Has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him pause there for a minute, and then we will get to this in more detail as we study through this book. But just a cursory reading. You recognize here, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And then it says, whoever does not, what? Obey. The Son shall not see life. It seems here that obedience and believing go hand in hand, right? We're talking here about parallelism describing what is going on here. So in order to believe, people say, well, I believe in God. Uh, all right, It's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing to be obedient to Him. It's another thing to say, I recognize the evidence that is there laid out before me, and I am now humbling myself before you, God, and you are going to have your freedom to have your way with me. I am humbling myself before you in obedience to you because I believe that the evidence is true. And that in believing, God promises that we are granted life. And, friends, that is not simply a ticket to heaven, although that is great, right? This life means eternal life, but, friends, it's far more than God has for us as His children to live a life that is pleasing to Him, a life that is glorifying Him, a life that is in Him, that is full of the assurances and the counsel and the guidance of who He is as He directs us in our marriages, in our families, in the church. He just wants us to continue to pour ourselves into Him and to discover this life that He has for us. So as we just bring things to a close right now, do you have life? My friend, you may be here visiting. You may have been a regular attender. Uh, There's nothing more important today Recognizing that Jesus Christ didn't die on a cross simply as a demonstration of his love to mankind. What the Bible teaches is that we all sin. And the reason we all sin is because we are sinners. We naturally sin. And there is this consequence for that sin. Scripture calls it death. Another way to put that is the wrath of God being poured out on us. It is spiritual death that he's talking about. It's a bleak story. It's it's really kind of a a horrible reality to, to, to know that because I sin, I have coming to me death or the wrath of God. But God in his wisdom not only pours out his wrath, but he also provides someone to bear that wrath. And that person is Jesus Christ himself. See, when he hung on that cross, he hung on that cross as our substitute. We deserve that punishment. We deserve that wrath to be poured on our shoulders, but Jesus hung there in our place. And it's kind of just think of the picture of of this umbrella covering us. God's wrath is being poured out on him. But he then is is taking it all in and we are fully and completely protected. Now, he says that's the gospel. If you repent, turn away from your sin. If you, by faith, come to him embracing this gospel, this good news, he promises all of us that we will have eternal life. You'll have life with him. And friends, if you have never seen your life in that way. You've never seen that Jesus Christ paid for your sin on that cross and made it possible for you to come face to face with God through him and be reconciled to him. And no longer be an enemy but be part of his family. And I want to plead with you. Humble yourself before him. The evidence is plenty. As we go through this gospel, we'll see it over and over and over again. And I want to plead with you, consider what God's word says. Consider what God says to you. Humble yourself before him. Don't don't just settle in your heart by saying, well, I believe God. Isn't that enough? The Bible tells us that the devils believe that God exists, but they fight against him. they reject. him. Not sufficient just to believe that God exists. What God calls us to is obedience, humility, just resting our lives completely and totally on what He accomplished on that cross. So, do you have life? Now years ago, you know, I remember people would tell each other, you know, just get a life, <laughs> um, my friends. There is a life to be had here. And it is life in Him. Are you believing? Is my next question. Now, this is directed in particular to those who are, who are believers. <laughs> are you believing? Did you know it's possible to be a, an agnostic believer? To say, I, I believe that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, He is my master, but I'm not going to believe you on this one thing, God. Right? So I'm choosing to ignore you there. Are you believing? As you go through this book, God's going to be filling you and strengthening you to say, you know, believe me, believe me, believe me, trust me, trust me. The evidence is there. The evidence is there. And when you do, you will have life. John wants to show you Christ so you can believe and have life in his name. Turn to the end of the Gospel of John. We'll close with this. The last chapter, almost the last few verses. We'll begin here at verse 20. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had been reclining at the table close to him and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Trying to get John involved here, too, and shirk responsibility. But Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? You follow me. So, So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that the disciple was not to die. The disciple being talked about here is John. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is what? In other words, John is saying, listen, I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you what I saw. I'm telling you what I experienced. I was the object of his love. And I want you to know this great Savior. He is the Christ, He is the Son of God. Now, verse 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Wherever one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. What we have in the Gospel of John is a treasure chest of the record and the evidence and the proof of who Jesus is, the fact that he is the Messiah, the fact that in believing that he is the Messiah, we ultimately will have life Him. Lord, help us today. It is hard sometimes, Lord, as we kind of lay a foundation for a book, if John kind of feel like maybe things are a little academic and maybe they have been Lord but I ask that you would encourage us today Lord as we've contemplated your word and as we've seen a little bit of John and his his experience with Jesus that we would identify ourselves there that as we come face to face with evidence over the course of the next number of months that we will be um, totally convinced as well as reinforced and encouraged and that our belief in him would increase and Lord the end result of that is that our life with you would grow and abound and and Lord that we would trust you more and we would be used by you in a greater way and that you would just have your way with us Lord we, we want you to be glorified Lord we want simply to be your servants ready to do your will Lord, help us to rest right now in the love of Jesus, to glorify you for who you are, and to see our responsibility, Lord, to know you more. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness for this time. And Lord, now as we sing a closing song, Lord, may it come from our hearts, we ask this, Lord.